0: This year, obviously, people are talking about the Will Smith slap, and they have been referring back to your speech. Well, I have one
1: thing to say about that. I didn't do it.
0: <laughs> Glad you made that clear. <laughs> yeah. This is Little Littlefeather whose appearance at the 1973 Academy Awards on behalf of Marlon Brando recently went viral in reaction to Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the 2022 Academy Awards ceremony. But there was a threat of violence that you faced that evening, and I wonder if you're open to talking about that. Backstage
1: behind me, John Wayne was very incensed, he attempted to assault me on stage. He had to be restrained by six security men in order to prevent him from doing exactly that.
0: There is no footage of John Wayne, the Hollywood actor famous for playing cowboys, reacting to Sashin's speech. But several people, including the director of that evening's awards, have confirmed these accounts. That night, Marlon Brando was nominated for Best Actor for his role as Don Corleone in The Godfather. He had asked Sachin to attend the ceremony in his place, and if he won, to refuse the award on his behalf.
1: Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and The Godfather, Miss Sachin Littlefeather.
0: Before Sachin went on stage that night, the producer of the ceremony told her that she would be arrested if she did not keep her speech to under a minute, the standard speech time.
1: I knew I had to do everything in 60 seconds or less. I saw the police officers waiting in the wings to take me in
0: handcuffs off the stage. Here is the speech that made John Wayne so angry that he needed to be restrained from charging the stage.
2: Hello, my name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening. He very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando.
1: I carried myself as a dignified Indian woman would carry herself. I spoke with courage, with dignity, with honor. I did not use my fist. I did not use profanity. And I did not use a loud and egregious voice. I spoke from my heart because the heart and the heartbeat is the voice of all Indigenous people everywhere. And that is exactly what happened in 60
0: seconds or less. In this week's episode, we are going to tell the the behind-the-scenes story of Sachin's speech and break down the political and cultural forces at play that led to that moment. And later in the episode, we'll hear from singer-songwriter and the first Indigenous person to win an Oscar, Buffy St. Marie. She tells us about her reaction to Sachin's speech as well as what she believes the Academy's role should be in relation to social justice movements. In 1973, Sasheen Littlefeather was both an activist and an actress. She says what inspired her to begin acting, in part, was the fact that her father was deaf.
1: I couldn't communicate with him in sign language like my mother did. So I had to communicate through other ways and basically had to act out for him
0: the messages. So you you were performing out of a kind of necessity, family necessity.
1: Yes, absolutely. And when I was in grade school, I got to play several parts in several different plays and enjoyed the experience. Of course, there was a lot of racial you know, prejudice back then as well. We were called the N-word in grade school. And when I went to visit Mississippi, Alabama, and the southern states, I was made to drink out of the black drinking faucet and use the black bathrooms. and. I felt, heard, saw, and knew that there were great injustices going on, not only as an Indian person, but with all people of color.
0: Were you thinking that acting could be a way that you could make a difference in terms of these issues? I think in
1: terms of acting, I felt that there should be Native people, Black people, Asian people, Chicano people. I felt that there should be an inclusion of everyone, a rainbow of people that should be involved in creating their own image.
0: I want to ask you about some of the ways that you, you know, encountered images of indigenous people on screen. I mean, did you have? Strong feelings about the Western when you were growing up? Did you immediately see this as a problem?
1: I think that everybody who saw Westerns who was Native wanted to be a cowboy. I think that there is a desire to be identifying with the winner. You know, who wants to identify with the loser? Well, I saw Native people as being stereotyped, there was a Hollywood Indian, the movie Indian, and then the real Indian. There were two Indians, one that was not real and one that was real. And I knew the one that was real, that had nothing to do with the screen Indian, with the Hollywood Indian, and under the domination of that stereotype. We couldn't get jobs in the industry and represent ourselves as we really are. There was job discrimination. And the movie industry basically looked like Clorox Factory. I mean, it was so white. It was
0: ridiculous. What sorts of opportunities were there for you when you were starting your acting career?
1: Well, very few, except I got a few jobs with Italian film crews. Because in those days, I was considered exotic, and that meant that you didn't get employment very often because you were too exotic for mainstream. You heard that rather than, we won't hire you because you're a person of color, Mm. no matter what your credentials were, no matter how good you were, period, especially in ads in advertising. You didn't use a bar of soap. You didn't use laundry detergent. You didn't drink Coca-Cola. We were just non-existent, and no one ever questioned that. I questioned it. I questioned it when I refused the Academy Award for Marlon Brando in
0: 1973. I want to talk a lot about what happened that night. But I think part of the important context is your work as an activist and your interests as an activist. You had participated in the Alcatraz occupation and you brought awareness to what was happening at Wounded Knee, the occupation there. And it would be really helpful, I think, to hear you talk about what that moment was like in the early 1970s in terms of Native struggle and organizing.
1: Many Native Americans have parents who went to American Indian boarding schools, whether they were run by the government or run by the churches, because the churches were instrumental in grabbing Indian land from Indians and keeping that land for themselves. And this is a way that making child napping Legal was taking children away at the age of four and five from the parents
0: and keeping them in boarding schools. In the U.S., there were over 400 boarding schools operating from the late 1800s up until as recently as the 1960s, with the express intention to assimilate indigenous children by removing them from their families. Keep the child.
1: But destroy everything about the Indian, destroy everything about the culture, destroy the language, destroy the Native American spiritual belief system, and turn the Native American into a dominant society person
0: with dominant society values. So in the late 60s, in the early 1970s, was there a particular way in which Folks were coming to consciousness that they were organizing in a way that was especially important at that time? There was the
1: American Indian Movement and its followers,
0: and they were the ones that were at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. The American Indian Movement was a militant civil rights group similar to the Black Panthers, or MECHA, that was raising consciousness and fighting for Indigenous issues. A month before Sachin's appearance at the Academy Awards, members of the American Indian Movement, along with 200 Oglala Lakota activists, seized control of the small town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, taking citizens hostage, and demanded the U.S. government make good on treaties respecting indigenous land ownership. The American Indian Movement wanted to bring attention to the broken promises of the U.S. government and the impoverished living conditions indigenous peoples were forced to endure. Here's Russell Means, one of the leaders of the occupation, talking about those conditions from Wounded Knee at the time.
1: We are suffering starvation, hunger, inadequate shelter, inadequate warmth, inclement-type weather. There was a great injustice there, the way that Native American Indian people were treated. And so the American Indian Movement came
0: there. Within hours of the occupation, police had surrounded the town. And as a result,
1: the FBI came
0: in, and there was a media blackout at Wounded Knee. Federal officials were blocking press from speaking to the Indigenous activists as part of their military tactic to squash the occupation. Now, when I came
1: up on the podium to represent Marlon Brando, I mentioned in my speech Wounded Knee.
0: Let's talk about how you um, sort of arrived at that moment of going on stage and giving this speech. When did you meet Marlon Brando? How How did you connect with him and how did this plan develop that you would stand in for him at the Academy Awards? I lived in San Francisco, not far
1: from Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola is, of course, the director of the Godfather trilogy. And I used to walk the hills of San Francisco, which is quite a feat because they're very steep. But that was my exercise. And I used to walk by Francis Ford Coppola's house every day. And he used to sit out on his porch. I had read many articles about Marlon Brando being interested in Native American Indian people. But I had wondered if Marlon Brando was very sincere in his interest in Native American Indian people? Or was he just studying up for a film role? So I wrote a letter to him, but I didn't know where to send it. And it was a very sincere letter. And I knew that Francis Ford Coppola had directed him in The Godfather. So... I asked Francis Ford Coppola when I was walking by one day as an attractive young woman I called out to him and I said hello and I introduced myself and he asked me to come up on his porch and I did and I began a conversation with him and eventually I told him I had this letter from Roland Brando and I said but I don't know where to send it so he helped me to send that letter. I waited a year. I was working at the radio station, KFRC. Finally, one day, a year later, at the radio station, I got this very mysterious call. So they put the call through. And he said to me, in his voices that he had, oh, I bet you don't know who this is. And I said, sure, I do. And he said, well, who is it? And I said, it's Marlon Brando. <laughs> and he, he laughed. And I said, well, you sure beat Indian time all to hell, I told him. <laughs> and he laughed again. And we laughed. And we just talked like we were old friends about everything that was Native if he was playing a part of a native or if he was really interested in native American Indian people. And we had a great conversation. And from then on, we just became phone buddies. He used to call me at home and then I would fly down and spend time with he and his family as a house guest. And, uh, I just knew him as a human being. I was interested in him as a fellow activist
0: and also as just a person, period. It sounds like you got to a place where you did feel that he was sincere in the interest that he was showing. Absolutely. Yes, I did. So when did he start to talk to you about the plan, the possibility that you would accept the Oscar on his behalf if he were to win. And he was clearly a front runner for winning the Academy Award that year.
1: So he called me on a Saturday and the Academy Awards was the next day. That's how fast it happened. And he swore me to secrecy, not to tell anybody, which I did not. And I flew down to his house And I asked him about my wardrobe because I really didn't have anything to wear except for my powwow dress, a northern-style buckskin dress, and moccasins and hair ties. So you could say basically he chose my wardrobe for me because he did. I didn't have any evening gown or evening wear. And uh, I went down to his house, and he was very busy. Is and his secretary typing up this acceptance speech, should he win? And I was kept basically in the dark. So it was really late in the day when his secretary gave me this long speech to read. Like eight pages, right? Eight, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I I said to myself, wow. This is pretty long. I I don't think I could do this. And when I got to the Academy Awards, Howard Koch, who was the producer of the Academy Awards show itself, said to me, If you read that speech or go over 60 seconds,
0: I'm going to have you arrested. That's when Sashin knew that she would have to improvise and not read off of the statement Marlon Brando and his secretary had written. And his name was called as
1: Best Actor. And so I knew what I had to do. And I was praying beforehand the whole time Mm. for the strength and the courage to do what I needed to do. And my ancestors were with me.
0: 50 million people were watching the broadcast that night. The immediate reaction in the room was mixed. As we noted, John Wayne was furious, and people reacted with a mixture of booing and applause. According to Sashin, there were consequences. You have said that after giving your speech that you were red-listed. and Could you talk about what you mean by that, what that meant in terms of your career? Well... In the industry, the
1: FBI, I found out, went around to studios. I have a friend who was with a particular studio, and she told me, Sasheen, the FBI, were just here. And they told us that if we would ever hire you, they would shut us down, shut our production down. So there were lies that were printed about me in the press, there were lies going around about me altogether, said I rented my buckskin dress, that I was an Indian, I was a Mexican actress, that it was all a publicity stunt, etc., etc., etc.
0: Nothing could be further from the truth. But ultimately, Sashin was not concerned about what Hollywood or the government thought about her or her speech.
1: People who sent me notes of congratulations were Coretta Scott King, the widow of Martin Luther King, and also Cesar Chavez, also my own people and others who counted in my life, who I admired. And I knew that I had done the right thing, irregardless of what other people had said or did to me. I knew I had done the right thing.
0: Coming up, legendary folk singer-songwriter, Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie was the first Indigenous person to win an Oscar.
2: And the winner is... Uh-huh. The is Jack Neachie, Buffy St. Marie, and Will Jennings. After ever-
0: She won for Best Original Song in 1983. She co wrote Up Where We Belong for the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. It was performed by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens.
2: Thank you for me, too. Marty Alphong, Stuart Levine, Joe Conker, Jennifer Warrens,
3: Kurt Sobel, my mom, my little boy, Cody, and most of all, my husband, Jack Nici, who gave me the chance to be a part of our president gentlemen. Thank you very much.
0: Buffy St. Marie, it's wonderful to see you always. Thanks, Jack. Well, and you too. In 1983, you became the first indigenous person to win an Oscar. Could you talk about that experience? Did it really uh, strike you that you were making history at that moment when your name was called and you went up on stage?
3: Oh, no, I never, <laughs> no, I never thought about that until recently when people have been phrasing it like that. No, uh, yes, I was the first indigenous person to win an Oscar and it was for Upper We Belong from an officer and a gentleman. I wrote the melody for that. So when it came to be that, We had been nominated and we knew we were going to go to the Oscar ceremony. Oh, I had this pink sparkly sequin dress. I mean, it was so wonderful. But we didn't really
0: expect to win. And then we did. (laughs) And it was just, it was just astounding. The previous time an Indigenous person was on the Academy Awards stage was Sashin Littlefeather 10 years earlier. Buffy had caught it on TV. At the time... She didn't know Sashine personally. What was your reaction to her speech? Well, of course I knew Marlon.
3: and this was 1973. For Pete's sakes, 1973. There was a war against indigenous people in South Dakota. I mean, Wounded Knee was going on. So what we had to deal with was a little bit different from everybody else in that studio audience or most of the people watching television. And I was very proud of Sashine, and I was totally surprised, of course. And he was proud of Marlon, too, because let me tell you how it is. Sometimes the American Indian Movement or some other group would invite a celebrity, you know, someone of the level of Jane Fonda or Marlon Brando, and they would show up all heart. You know, they would really, really want to help and all. (laughs) But what do you think the doggone media is going to do? They're not there to see our issue. And we wind up with a great big story about our celebrity who was there to help the indians and the issue isn't even portrayed accurately which kind of was the point so for sashine to get up there in front of the whole wide world and to represent marlin in that way i thought i thought it was great but you know there's a lot to say we should probably give people kind of a feeling about how it was in Hollywood for indigenous people, you know? Yeah. How could you? Been.
0: Yeah. Because she that's the first thing she says. She talks about the treatment of the American Indian. Maybe you could help us to sort of get a sense of the picture that she was describing.
3: Well, it's kind of weird if you if you look at movie history, I guess probably the first thing that you would come up with <laughs> involving indigenous people would be Thomas Edison. I mean, he made... He made one of the first movies and, you know, they wanted colorful things and interesting things. So we started showing up and and, um, being portrayed by other people in the movies (laughs) right out of the gate.
0: Two short Edison films made in the late 1800s, Buffalo Dance and Sioux Ghost Dance, featuring Sioux tribes members, are considered to be the first instances of indigenous peoples caught on film. From Robert Flaherty's Nanook of the North in 1922 to educational films from the mid-20th century, indigenous communities have long been of interest to documentarians, but the films were almost never told from indigenous points of view. The University of Arizona's American Indian Film Gallery includes nearly 500 documentaries. They feature narration that the project's archivists describe as condescending at best and racist and inaccurate at worst. So Buffy was naturally skeptical of projects aimed to capture Indigenous history.
3: But anyway, in 1967 or 68, I was invited to take a
0: role in The Virginian. The Virginian was a television series set in late 1800s Wyoming.
3: And I was offered a role in an episode. But I said, if you want me, Buffy St. Marie, who got hit records and is known as an Indigenous person to show up in your movie, what I want is real easy. All the Indigenous parts are to be played by Indigenous people. And of course, they said, oh, no, that uh, yeah, we've got, I forget what the number was, 32 extras or something. And we've got some leading parts, too. They can't all be Indians. And I said, well, then I'm not going to do it because I know they can.
0: So they were going to use makeup, right, to to make people look like Indians, (laughs) huh? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. They said, they said, don't worry about it. We've got
0: Filipinos,
3: we've got Italians, we've got Jews, we've got Koreans. And besides that, we've got makeup artists that can turn a dog into a cat. And my reaction to that (laughs) was, you know, it's more important than just fooling white people. We're giving you a gift here. We had so much to bring to the table. And see, Marlon had been in Indian country. He knew that. He knew we weren't just one little, two little, three little Indians to be exploited when somebody needed something in feathers to act like a villain or a victim. He knew. So we appreciated Marlon. So Sashin, you know, she looked so beautiful. She was wearing her traditional clothes. And yet we were all quite, you know, any, anybody that I've ever talked to about that evening, you know, we were all totally surprised, of course.
0: But bravo to both of them. You know, they they did something. And I was hoping that you could also talk about some of your activism during that period, part of the Alcatraz occupation, for example, because that period is so critical in terms of the American Indian movement. And uh, do you have some, you know, any reflections on the legacy of that movement today? Well, Alcatraz was very important at the time, and I still think that
3: Alcatraz is important because Alcatraz was not done just by a bunch of people who were kicked off because <laughs> their rights were being denied. There was a lot more to it than that. Um, the history of Alcatraz itself, I mean, Alcatraz should have come to Indigenous people. It should have come back to us when they were finished using it for what they were using it
0: for at the time. Alcatraz sat on public land. And so, when the infamous Alcatraz prison was shut down and a development plan for a casino was announced, indigenous activists decided to occupy the island and reclaim it. Buffy never lived on the island, but she helped bring clean drinking water to the occupiers.
3: We wanted to turn it into cultural centers, and, you know, uh, we had uh, we had done our homework when well, I mean we I don't mean me particularly, but it was John Trudell and a lot of other people who are in the next world now, who really did that work. But the reason why it was important, Alcatraz was one of many, many building complexes, you know, campuses that were created on indigenous land with the blessing of indigenous people, with contracts. And when they were no longer going to be used for that specific purpose, they were supposed to come back to us. I mean, I wound up ducking bullets uh, I'm running running through the woods in Gresham, Wisconsin, over this medical facility built on uh, Menominee land, and it was supposed to be returned to the people. I mean, it was built by the Catholic Church with the agreement of the Menominee people, and then it was supposed to revert back to the tribe, and the local vigilantes were not having any of it. They wanted it for themselves, and they were shooting at us, so... There were things going on before and, and after Alcatraz, although I'm glad you bring it up. What kind of bothers me a little bit is that it's like every 25 years, there's an Indian uprising and we get our names in the paper and then everybody forgets about us. <laughs> because, I don't you know, just the way of the world. In Canada, Indigenous people are quite prominently represented in just about any field or profession you can think of. I mean, you know, from, from, from television broadcasters and lawyers, there's a huge, huge mix of professions. And uh, there are a few people, you know, in the academy. There are a few indigenous people. I'm not the only indigenous person in the academy. There are other indigenous people. But it's tricky right now, you know, with the academy because just our way of voting, you vote in your own field. Like I only vote. I'm, I'm in the music branch but so and i'm the only indigenous person in the music branch and you have to have two people in your branch to nominate somebody and so although we have directors and producers and actors and actresses and we have people in all, in you know a lot of the professions there are not two indigenous people in any profession familiar enough with what the indigenous talent scene is in film to be able to properly bring those people forward. We have to discuss that. If It is a lot of talented people.
0: Structural issue that you're pointing to. You might have bigger numbers, but if people are isolated in their branches, then what's the impact that they can have?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Do you think the Academy can or should have a stronger presence in terms of weighing in on social, political issues, activist work?
3: Oh, gosh, that's, that's so hard. You know, I try very hard not to tell anybody else what to do. And when it comes to a question like that, I would, I would certainly be willing to be part of a discussion. But I do see many sides of many questions. I told you as a philosophy major. <laughs> so I can, look at, I can look at things from six or 10 points of view at the same time and have fun with that. I don't know. The way I look at it, Jacqueline, is that there's a whole lot of good work left to be done in the world, including in the movie industry. And that's why we're here. Yeah. So I don't take your, your question about, you know, whether the Academy ought to be doing more. Everybody ought to be doing more. Everybody's ripening and growing and understanding and learning at the same time. So you know, just, as for myself, I'm just going to keep on producing good stuff. And if somebody sees it, great. And if they don't see it, not as great, but still great. Because I'm a creative, the movie industry is one of the places that I've been allowed to, you know, do my little dances, you know, scoring movies and being in things and encouraging people and just being involved with the academy. is it's It's a great privilege. And we can make good change, and we should, and it shouldn't be a chore, and it shouldn't hurt. It, it shouldn't hurt we can do this in joy i mean we're creative people and we certainly have the resources
0: yes absolutely yes i have one one more question for you okay i'm going to take a take a little step back when you hear the term indigenous representation buffy what does that mean to you
3: uh, i would have to i would have to ask for details <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what you're going at, but I'll take a stab at it. What I've gotten out of being a concert artist and, you know, folk singer or songwriter, however you want to describe me, has been airplane tickets. And those airplane tickets not only have taken me to London and Paris and Hong Kong and Sydney, you know, but also to the indigenous corners of the world where Michael Jackson and Madonna would not want to go, <laughs> and would not even be invited to go. It's just a different world. So the world of indigenous people, whether you're talking about indigenous people like Maoris in New Zealand or Aboriginal people in Australia and all the different kinds of people in, in Africa, whether you're talking about the Sami people and the indigenous people of Scandinavia. I mean, I've spent lots of time with other indigenous people. So when I hear the word indigenous, I, I don't just think of Canadian Indians (laughs) or American Indians. I don't. I think about first, I know this is actual. When you say the word indigenous, first, my brain takes a trip from the Arctic Circle all the way to to the bottom of South America. All those different people, they're all indigenous. And I've traveled enough in, in both the glamorous world of show business But also a lot with Indigenous people. And I know, I know how it, I know how it is. And Indigenous people in the world, what we have in common is a lot of really, really good stuff. Indigenous people had different systems. Indigenous people sometimes still, but not as much as we wish, had languages that were quite different from the concept of languages that most people have. I mean, if you talk about Spanish and Italian and Portuguese and French, you know, they're all kind of related. And if you look at your hand, each one of those is like a finger. But an indigenous language doesn't come from that part of exercising the brain. It doesn't come from there. It's like a thumb. It has a different function. And people who are interested in this subject will tell you that indigenous languages are sometimes exercising a different part of the brain, coming up with different ways of thinking, different ideas. And when you think of the things that indigenous people, just indigenous people of the Americas have given the rest of the world, you might say, oh, they look different or they have different music or different food. Oh, boy, we can think differently. We have contributions that have yet to be made to the world and people ought to start paying attention. It's not only survival stuff, it's all kinds of other stuff, (laughs) artsy stuff, stories, ways of telling stories. I spent some time with an indigenous woman from Mexico who came from a small rural group, discovered the Spanish language and fell in love with it, went to university. And when she went home, she had the darndest time explaining to her friends what it was that she did, because in her language, there's no metaphor. So everything, the only thing you talk about is what is, therefore there's no lying. (laughs) But she could not explain what poetry was. And she became a poet. So now she's a poet who's, who writes in her own language for the first time ever and in Spanish. So indigenous people all over the world are a, a page that most of you have not turned yet. <laughs> and it is exciting like a library is exciting. It's about everything. And we're about everything, including our stories
0: and how we can portray them. It's It's all good. You know, it's just all good. Yeah. When you talk the way you're describing <laughs> this incredible wealth of cultural heritage and thinking, think about that. And then you think about the tiny range of representations of Indigenous people on screen. I mean, the gap is uh, is staggering there, just how limited the representations have been. It's
3: staggering, you know, and um, you know, there's one way of looking at it would be to say, poor us, we're not represented. But the other way of looking at it is poor you. You don't know what you're missing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always the way I've thought about it.
0: Well, thank you, Buffy. Thank you so much for these insights Thank in your you time. too, Jacqueline. I always enjoy talking with you so much. Thank you.
2: That your big eyes Are finally opened Now that you're wondering How must they feel Meaning them That you've chased Across America's movie screens Now that you're wondering How can it be real That the ones you've called Colorful, noble and proud In your school propaganda they starve in their splendor. You've asked for my comment, I simply will render My country is of thy people, you're dying.
0: The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. This episode was produced by Antonia Sarajito. The Academy Museum podcast team includes Kimberly Stevens, Victoria Alejandro, and Antonia Sarahito. The show is a production of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in collaboration with LAS Studios. Mixing and original music by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme music was composed by Nicholas Bertel. Antonia Sarajito and Leo G are the executive producers for Elias Studios. Our podcast website, slash podcast, is designed by Andy Cheapwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The Academy Museum marketing team created our branding. Thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Sean Anderson, Peter Castro, Stephanie Sykes, and Matt Younger, and to our Academy colleagues, Randy HaberCamp and Claire Lockhart. Thanks also to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Costantino, and Leo G. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.